Welcome to Indrani's Light Foundation's Caring for the Caregivers podcast. This is episode 20, part two, a continued discussion about the number one New York Times bestselling book called Option B. In this part two episode, we are joined by Indrani, Amy, Stacy, and Jeremy, who are members of the entire ILF team. Today, the ILF team will continue discussing some portions of the book, and Jeremy and Amy will take their turn reading a short passage from the book that had meaning for them personally, then explain the lesson or takeaway they experienced. The team will discuss their takeaways as a group as well. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm going to take my turn now, and... Just as we've been talking, I think I realize why this section is so important for me is that it links back to some of the Brene Brown work that we do in our trainings with the concept that shame can't exist when you shine light upon it. When we share our feelings and share what's happening for us, that makes it a lot more difficult for shame to stick around and affect us. And so my quote is from chapter eight, It's called Finding Strength Together, and it's on page 130. And it says, when we build resilience together, we become stronger ourselves and form communities that can overcome obstacles and prevent adversity. Collective resilience requires more than just shared hope. It is also fueled by shared experiences, shared narratives, and shared power. And for me, I just think this is so important for us as a team at Andrani's Light Foundation and for all of you working in the shelter where you're part of a team, but a lot of your day is spent one-on-one with clients or one with a small group of clients. And you may be bottling a lot of the things that are going on inside of you. And then you're going home and you're having those experiences with your family and not necessarily being able to talk with them about it. And so you're not building resilience together. And I think if we can shift this in our lives and stop keeping these things to ourselves, by building together, we can discover new options, find new ways to move forward, and you can build some resilience as a group in your shelter and with your family. Uh, You know, it talks about shared experiences. So I can remember when I worked at the crisis center in Vancouver, one of the things that they did, and I know some of our shelters actually have these areas too, is we all took our calls in one big room with cubicles. And so even though you're on a one-on-one call with somebody, you always had the other volunteers in the room sharing that experience with you they would come over and write notes to you and ask you if you were okay, or you would ask them to look up a resource that you could give to somebody on the phone. But we all had this shared experience when we were on shift that helped us all be stronger when we had to get into those difficult calls. And I think you can create these shared experiences in in your shelter if you know, you take that time to find those trusted colleagues, like we talk about in our training, and talk to them about the experiences and challenges you're facing. And I don't mean gossip about other people or complain or vent, but actually share those experiences 
and find that common ground with each other and build those feelings of resilience together with those shared experiences. And the other thing that I think is great about the curriculum that we teach is we start to give you common language that you can use to discuss those shared experiences. So even if you're telling your trusted colleague a story about how much shame you feel because you yelled at your kids, they're going to have the language now to say, whoa, 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 that's not shame, that's guilt. And that language is going to help you connect in that shared experience. The other part it touches on is having those shared narratives. And again, going back to my crisis line experience, we used to have the opportunity to listen in to other people's calls and learn from them and have that language and then debrief those calls and be able to talk about it so that we all had shared stories about certain types of calls and shared languages about certain type of people that would call in. We used to have a regular caller list that we could talk about, you know, what was going on with these people that called in once a night. And so that shared narrative really helped us to bond together again and uh, build this, this group resilience. And again, the ILF curriculum, we have a, uh, exercise that is just amazing called going to the movies and it teaches you a method of sharing your experience and stories with other others so that you can see what's happening for yourself but also see similarities with the stories that your colleagues are sharing when they go to the movies and i think that can be really powerful and then there's the shared power aspect and at the crisis line it wasn't just our administration that supported us we had peer support teams that would help train new volunteers and would be there for debriefs with new volunteers. And that gave those of us who had been at the crisis line for a longer time, that shared power of we're part of this team, we're helping the new people come on, we're supporting our administrators. And that shared power gave us a group of people that we could talk with each other and really again, start to, to build that group resilience. And again, the ILF cur curriculum, by having that common language, you can now start having conversations with each other and with your administration about joint solutions at the shelter and things that you would like to change. I know when Amy and I taught at one shelter, one of the big things that was happening for the, the, the frontline caregivers was they weren't feeling appreciated. The administration appreciated them, but they weren't speaking it. They weren't showing it. And so the frontline caregivers were feeling like nobody appreciated the work that they, they, they did. And once we, we talked with them about that and started doing some of the work with them, they all realized that one of the things they need to do is come up with a joint solution of how are we going to give feedback so that everybody knows that they're doing a good job and that we have gratitude for them and that we have, you know, this, these joint solutions, which gives everybody a feeling of power that they can make a diff difference at work. They're not just being told what to do all the time. And so that's my quote, all about building group resilience or building resilience together so that we're stronger with many than we are with one. Jeremy, that's great. I loved that you ended with stronger with many than we are with one, because I think that we forget that we are always with many, but we cut ourselves off. Yeah, for sure we do. Yeah, yeah and I love how you tied this into our curriculum, Jeremy. Uh, our uh, 
fourth module in the curriculum is about finding resilience. And we do a lot of Brené Brown's work. We teach a lot about empathy and empathy listening. And it's hard. It takes some practice. Mm -hmm. We practice with them during the training about how to listen with empathy. Put them in groups of two or three and one person tells their story or a story. It's something that's going on in their lives just daily. Some kind of light intensity story. And the others need to just listen with empathy and not offer advice, not, you know, discuss and come up with some kind of solution. It's really just listening and being present for someone and also knowing the difference between sympathy and empathy. Mm. So as you said, Jeremy, when you can find the person that maybe has been through the same thing you have, and you develop that kind of resilience and shared res you know, resilience with someone who's been through it as well. And you can kind of connect with them and share those feelings and share that kind of experience. It really takes a community. It really takes uh, other human beings to help you through any kind of grief or whatever's going on in your life. That's my belief. And um, thank you for sharing this part of the book yeah. and really helping the caregivers in this way of just knowing between the elephant in the room, right? Uh, as well as resilience, this is the way we can work through it. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Amy, you want to share your quote with us? Yes. I tackled the last chapter of the book, and this chapter is called To Live and Laugh Again. And as most of you know, I love humor, and I survive off of humor. I... I'm using the quote out of the book, page 167. And this quote says, humor can also provide a little dash of morality in which wrongs are righted. When you take a horrible situation and add a punchline to it, for at least a moment, you have shifted the balance of power. And she goes on to, you know, talk about how society has really used humor and some you know, pretty awful things that have happened to people or in our society to just add a little bit of humor to it. And one of the things that I love about humor, the first thing is, is that it's my number one strength. When I take the strengths test on the VIA Institute, many times it always shows up in my top five strengths to work through any type of trauma in my life or problem or whatnot, there's always humor in it. And why is that? And I believe that humor really um, shifts energy. When I have been at funerals or people who have, who I've lost in my life, we have to shift the energy sometimes when it gets so intense. And that's why when, uh, if you've ever spoken at a, a funeral or you've given a eulogy, you find some kind of fun or humorous part about them. Because when people start to laugh after crying or while they're crying and find some way of lightening, it just, it just shifts people, relaxes them a bit and takes the charge out of grief just for a moment. I actually participated in a, uh, in a play. It was actually called Wild Money Monologues. And I was asked to share my money story. 
And it was one of the most difficult things that I could do because I was in public on stage performing my money story in which I lost everything in my life 10 years ago. So I discussed that I lost my home. I had to file for bankruptcy. I lost my business. Uh, I lost my marriage. I lost my car. I mean, everything about my life because of the economic crash and the place that I was in, uh, in my business to risk everything as it was so successful. And even after all of that, my dog died. And so as I'm talking about all this, people are in the audience and they are, you know, I can hear them crying or gasping like, oh my gosh, how can you get through that? How can you heal from that? And then I talked about how I was a country Western song <laughs> and people just kind of burst out into a little bit of laughter and it just shifted them to where they knew I felt hope and that it's okay. I can find humor in that at some point. And then at the end, when I talked about how everything has just uh, really gone to a healing place of the fact that I'm playing the country Western song backwards now. And then they all just, you know, laugh again. And I asked if anybody could actually write this country Western song. Uh, we can make probably a million dollars out of it. I found humor. It was one of the most memorable things that they remembered about the Wild Money monologues after we got done with our performance and you know how you go out and uh, people meet with you and you know they give you some feedback and that was the most memorable for them is because I brought humor into a story that was pretty tragic for me or really probably anyone who would suffer from an incomplete financial loss so that's what I used I love it we use it in our training as well when things start getting intense because we're dealing with intense feelings here. We're, we're talking about boundaries. We're talking about our values. We're talking about how we want to be perceived as. We're talking about shame and guilt. So how can we go through two days of training with all this intense feelings without using humor to really shift the balance there and take some charge out of it? So I really appreciated that Cheryl really talked about how to use humor in her life and her grief and that she shared that with her husband, Dave, during their marriage, even in their planning their wedding and how it was so incredibly important for them to use humor. What do you think, theme? What do you think about humor? Well, Amy, uh, this is Indrani. I remember last week, when I snuck into the room where you were training and you had everyone in a restorative pose and it was really um, a very peaceful moment, but there was one lady who needed more space and she didn't ask for it. And you sweetly went over there and you moved the table out and you said, we have a problem child here and everybody started laughing. <laughs> and there was a little, you remember that moment? I then do, yeah. There was laughter, and then uh, the, the, the energy changed. It, it was a different kind of peaceful energy. There was a lot of, um, of pent-up energy released with the laughter that you were able to get them to, to perform. 
Yes, I remember that so much. And it's the first time that's happened in one of our meditation times for them, <laughs> is that they take it so seriously, like, oh, we have to be really quiet, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, really still, yeah. we can't move. And as soon as that happened, then we started getting some giggles. Because exactly. And you just, you just rolled with it. I, I, I wondered, I, you know, as an observer and somebody who has taught this, I wondered if you were going to think, oh my gosh, um, you know, they need to be quiet. This is meditation. But you just went with it and it was great. <laughs> it was fun to listen to them giggle. It relaxed yeah. them and it was really fun. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, the importance of humor, it's interesting. Uh, this past week, I was reading something about uh, medieval times, the Dark Ages, and uh, it was talking about how back then there was actually the court jester who was the one person in all of the realm that was allowed to make fun of and bring humor about the monarchs without the threat of having their, their head chopped off. And so when I read your quote, when we were organizing this episode, Amy, I just thought back to that, that, you know, humor must be pretty important if back in the day there was a, a person who was actually given amnesty to bring humor to tough situations and be protected by doing that. And then the article went on to talk about how right now it's our late night hosts are our court gestures. They're allowed to do these things and, say things that are funny that might not be funny in other settings, but they have some freedom to, to bring, like Cheryl talks about some of the gallows humor or some of the darker human to the table because they're kind of filling that court gesture role. And so I just, I think that it is super important. And, uh, you know, sometimes I know I definitely take myself too seriously and, and that I need some of that humor. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Cheryl does a beautiful job about describing ways in which we can use humor in our society as late night hosts do or Saturday Night Live or however that works out. Uh, but just really just that shift in, in the energy um, in a, a lot of serious ways. Stacy, how are you with uh, humor in really tough situations? Well, I can say that I appreciate humor <laughs> in tough situations that, you know, it just kind of feels like it eases the heaviness in, in situations and that can be very welcomed. When you mentioned at funerals, like during a eulogy, bringing to light something funny, you know, that the, the person who has passed on might have went through or some, something funny about them, that brought me back to a couple times of funerals I've been to recently that, you know, you could really just feel that lighten the air in the room, which I think always helps. It just kind of makes you think of the good times, the good memories. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, so today we have discussed the book option B facing adversity Building Resilience and Finding Joy by Cheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. We took some sections from the book. We talked about kicking the shit out of option B, kicking the elephant out of the room, building group resilience, and then adding a bit of humor. And these are just a few 
uh, of the big takeaways that I know I had and I know the team had. Uh, my copy of the book is dog-eared and has little post-it notes in it and little stars beside passages and underlined sections. And so if you're struggling with anything from small things that feel like you don't have an option with or that you're stuck in all the way to these big tragedies like they're talking about in this book, we really recommend you try picking up a copy uh, from your local library or Amazon or your local bookseller. Get a copy of option B, read through it, and you're really quickly going to see some tools and some ways that you can deal with some of the difficult challenges that you're having in your life. So thank you, Amy, Stacy, and Indrani for coming today to the podcast. And I think that's a wrap. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Jeremy and Amy and Stacy, this podcast was your brainstorm, and I cannot ever thank you enough. It is brilliant. I love doing it with you. All right. Well, we'll see you all next time. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Caring for the Caregivers podcast. You can visit indranislight.org forward slash support and anonymously share your own questions or challenging situations to be answered on the show. You can also sign up for our free caregiver package resources at indranislight.org forward slash care package. If you have any questions, you can email our team at info at indranislight.org. We hope this podcast has been a source of support and comfort to the amazing work you do in the world. And remember, we see you.